Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezra chapter 7. And last Sunday the sermon title was Getting Back on Track with God, and that was really a great sermon for those that feel like maybe, you know, you're a Christian and your faith is getting stagnant, you've been distracted, you're saying, you know, I really got to get back to reading the Bible, I got to go back to going to church, I really got to just go back to devoting my life to the Lord. So if you didn't get it, you can get that from last Sunday's sermon. And this Sunday's sermon is something completely different. It's called the changing of the guard or changing hands. And what happened in, in history? Well, we know this in history is history. There's no history that's secular, history that's biblical. It's just history. It either happened or it didn't happen. Okay. In Ezra 6, who's where we left off, and Ezra 7 today, decades have passed. Some speculate 50-some years. And, you know, there's a lot of differences happening. We look at Jerusalem, and, you know, the Persians have been favorable to the Jews. You know, this is history. Letting them go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the city, etc. And so the, the city now is still in ruins. There's still stones everywhere. There's still a mess. You know, the walls aren't up. But the temple's built. But in addition to that, there's really a spiritual malaise. There's a spiritual apathy among the people. And it's, it's a little discouraging. Well, the changing of the guard happens in a few places. It happens with uh, the Persian leadership, right? So before in Ezra 6 to Ezra 7, in between them, you have uh, Xerxes the Great. Some of you might have heard of him. If you're a fan of history, you know that Xerxes wasn't so great when he went up against the Greeks because they... They whooped them at the Battle of Thermopylae where the 300 Spartans held up tens of thousands of Persians. And then there was the naval battle at Salamis which Xerxes also lost against the Greeks. And the, the tide started to turn. So Persia's kind of coming towards its waning days and the Greeks under Alexander the Great starts to rise up. But if you know the Bible, you know that in Xerxes' time, uh, he ends up marrying Esther, the, the Jewish girl, right? We see this in the book of Esther. So things are happening in between this time period. And if you look at it, uh, Cyrus the Great over here, they really were very prideful. They're, they're all the great. This one the great, that one the great. But Cyrus helps the Jews send back to rebuild the, uh, the temple under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Then there's um, major opposition by the Persian government. You had two kings after Cyrus, and then you have Darius, who finds favor with the Jews, lets them start to rebuild again. In the interim, between 6 and 7, is Xerxes, the great, or Ahasuerus, marries Esther. Nothing really happens here. Now we jump into Ezra 7, where Artaxerxes I takes the throne. Why? Because Xerxes is assassinated. A lot of this went on in the, the monarchies of old. Artaxerxes I, Longimanus, takes the throne. He finds his father's uh, killer, and he kills him. Okay? We're going to learn a little bit about Artaxerxes, how he favored the Jews as well. There was some favorability going on. So, there's, again, you have the Persian leadership changes hands, changing of the guard. You have the Jewish leadership. 
Zerubbabel's out, Ezra's in later on. Actually, we covered the book of Nehemiah, and he comes in after that. But what about today? I really want to make the case. Listen, time marches on. We all get older. It's just the way it is, linear time. And you're going to find that in your life, too. You're going to find that maybe there's an opportunity for you to rise up. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to acquiesce to somebody else who has qualifications. We can look at this in our professions. We can look at this in the church. So we're going to see how it affects us, how it affected them, and we're going to take this in six parts. So starting with verse 1, Ezra's qualifications, it says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord, of, the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and do it and teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. So what does this all mean? The first part is this change in leadership that I've been talking about. We can look this secular, Artaxerxes is out, excuse me, Xerxes, Ahasuerus is out, Artaxerxes is in. Now, if you go into your history books, you'll see, you know, this guy did exist, obviously, and the history books will tell you that some things were written about this Persian king. He was kind, he was brave, he was popular, he was prosperous. Mostly peace, but Egypt and Greece rebelled at times against the Persians. Now, think about this. God had, if we could put up the second image, God had the king show favor on the Jews, but, and I don't know, did God put this thought in his mind? You know, I love to go into the political situation. I love to go into history. I have a lot of fun with it. Try to understand these leaders, what was their temperament, etc. But if I'm Artaxerxes, I'm thinking, the Persian Empire has a problem all the way to the west by the Mediterranean. You have the Greeks and the Egyptians are rebelling. In between the Greeks, the Greeks and the Egyptians is the Mediterranean Sea. On the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, not long inland, you have Israel. So if I'm Artaxerxes, I'm thinking, well, let me, let me send the Jews over there. Let me finance them, and I'll have a, a favorable military outpost on the western side of my empire where I'm having trouble, where there's a weakness. Isn't that fascinating? So we can look at the scripture. You know, people do this. Well, the Bible, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's made up. Only when you start to study it do you understand the power in the scripture and how it, it talks about these leaders. And then you start to understand them from secular sources and you start to build a case. So this is what's going on. The second image, again, he had Cyrus. We covered him. Cambyses, this was an imposter, pseudosmertus. Darius, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and now we're with Artaxerxes I, Longimanus. Okay? Spiritually, what's going on? The, the Israelites are struggling again. God's people are having trouble. 
They're being influenced by the pagans. They're negatively being influenced. They're not really spreading what they should as far as you know, their witness. They're starting to be negative influenced by others. So what happens is the second wave of Jews comes from Persia, goes west, crosses the Euphrates, and ends up in Jerusalem again. Um, Ezra brings finances. He brings help. And he's preaching, unfortunately, against a very stagnant spiritual condition. Can I tell you something? This could happen in the church, too. And it has happened in the church over the years in different geography. That's why we really have to make an effort. It's like the second law of thermodynamics, where everything goes from a state of order to chaos. That, that's effective spiritually as well. You know, We need to, and just like even in a relationship, you think of a marriage, you think of any relationship, if you don't put anything into it, it starts to wane. And it's the same thing with us and God. He's always in the same spot. The problem is we move. That's the issue. The issue's not with him. The issue's with us. That's a fact. So Ezra, he's the new Zerubbabel, but he trusts God in a way that we'll find is even greater than Zerubbabel trusted God. If we could put up the third image. And this basically is this timeline. You know, we went through the timeline. I'm just kind of putting these up quickly because I've gone through these before. Um, for some of you, you know, high school, ancient history is coming back to you, maybe a little bit stimulating some of those neur neurons. Uh, but you, you see this, the, the deportations to Babylon. You've got King Cyrus here. Um, you know, Zerubbabel and Joshua, if we can go to the next one. The foundation of the temple is laid under, remember, Darius. Uh, over here you have the work interrupted. The, the work, I'm sorry, the foundation is laid. The work is interrupted. And the temple is completed under Darius. And then, between here and here, which is several decades, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem. And we can take that down. So this is what's going on. Now, my question is, again, what about today? Changing of hands, changing of the guard. Well, every four years, every six years in American politics. And whoever gets in and gets out, somebody's happy and somebody's not happy. It's just the way it is, <laughs> right? This changing of the guard, this changing of hands, okay? In your profession, right? what you do for a living. You find that when you were young and in your 20s, you might have started off in this profession and now you're getting to the point where you're going to retire and somebody else is going to come in. So you see this all around. You also see it in the church. You know, when Pastor Chuck Smith passed away, uh, the founder of Calvary Chapel, there was some growing pains in Calvary, especially out in California, something I might be addressing from the pulpit depending on how it goes in the next few weeks or months. Last week I was talking to our elder Bill in the children's ministry, and a young lady, a young adult, um, when she had first come to the church, she was a little kid. She went through the children's ministry, the teen ministry, and now she's stepped up to the plate and she's a leader. She wants to teach the kids. Boy, do I feel old. <laughs> you know, just to watch these milestones, but it's just, it happens. If the Lord tarries 20 years or more, we might need new pastors here. You see what I'm saying? So this is a, it's a fact of life. You don't freeze time. Fry, time is always moving, okay? And we're getting older. It's just the way it is. So changing of the guard is inevitable, or else the organization dies. So here's the question to you is, are you willing to step up to the plate? If God is calling you, he's stirring you through your devotions, through your reading, through your prayer, he's, he's stirring you to something big that he wants to do. And you can, through, with your free will, you could say no. Jonah tried it for a while, it didn't go really well for him. But <laughs> the bottom line is, are we willing to answer the Lord's call, right? Everybody has to answer that question. In verse 6, it says that Ezra, we, we see that Ezra was bold with his request to the king. 
Now, this wasn't like going to your boss for a raise, okay? Let's keep this in perspective. Ezra goes to the king of what we would understand today as almost a dozen mighty nations, a, sw a huge swath of land. And he says, I need finances. You know, God has stirred me. I need to go west. I need to go to Jerusalem. I need people. This was big. This was big. Unfortunately, there's some of these faith preachers will tell you to go big and go bold for you. I would tweak that a little bit and say, go big and go bold for God. If God is in it, if this is something he wants you to do, he'll make it work. That's just the way how, how he rolls. He wants to see, where's our faith? You know, is this something that we believe? Right? Is this something that we'll, we'll follow him for? Verse 6 and 10, it says, Ezra was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. In addition to that, he prepared his heart to, one, seek the law of the Lord, and two, to do it, and three, to teach it. So to seek, to do, and to teach. You know, if you're going to a church and they're not teaching the Bible, go to a different church. It doesn't have to be a Calvary Chapel. But God's Word is so important, and you see that the, the people that God would honor in the Scripture are those that desired His Word. They desired to grow in His Word. So he sought the law of the Lord. He sought God's word. But he also, it says, and to do it. That's where the application comes in. Again, we're also wasting our time if we come to church to get a good feeling and then we do what we want for the rest of the week. The, the desire and, is to take what God's word is that we learned and to apply it to our lives, the application phase. So, so to, to seek, to do, and the third point was to teach. Do you know that sometimes we teach others the unsaved, the word, without even using words, sometimes just with our attitude, sometimes with just our demeanor, sometimes with just our lifestyle. So to seek, to do, and to teach, really important things, examples. Sometimes we use words, sometimes we don't have to. And God honors those that love his word. Psalm 119, 105 said that God's word is a lamp to my feet, the, the psalmist says. He says, God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It guides me. It, it, you know, I, I follow it. it you know, I, I apply it. Right? You see all these scriptures that talk about this. I think what makes this even more remarkable is that Ezra grew up in Babylonian culture, which became Persian culture, although if you study the, the empires when they took over, they would often retain a lot of the conquered empires. So even the Romans, when they conquered the Greeks, um, they, they retained the Koine Greek language and a lot of the things that the Greeks had done. However, they were very pagan. So Ezra here, we find, he's not stained by this Persian culture. He's not. And we have to ask ourselves, are we being stained? American culture is decadent. Listen, I love this country. I love that we can vote. I love a lot of things about this country. But it's becoming increasingly decadent. And some of that stuff bleeds and finds itself into the church. It finds itself affecting Christians in a negative way. So this is something that we have to look at. In verse 6, it says, The hand of the Lord his God was upon him. We're going to see this six times in these two chapters. The hand of the Lord God was upon Ezra. And let me tell you something. That's where I want to be. I want to be where the hand of the Lord God is upon me. You can keep your celebrity, you can keep your fame, you can keep all that stuff. I'll just give you an example. And, and sadly, believers are wooed by what they see on TV, and sometimes, um, you know, there's a, lot that, there's a lot of illusion out there. It's just illusion, you know? So I'm going to say this, and I'm not cutting on the guy. Somebody very famous, he's young, 
He's a few years younger than me, so I'm going to say he's young. Jimmy Fallon. People love him. He's, a, you know, funny and this and that. I'm not saying I love him. I'm saying people love him. You know, he's, he's always laughing. He always seems to be having a good time. But recent articles have showed that, that his substance abuse is, is destroying him. And it may destroy his career. And his handlers are saying, you've got to get a hold on this. But you watch TV, it's all staged. It's an illusion. And they make fun of Christians. Like, we're the strange ones. We're the, you know, and, and it's, quite frankly, it's the opposite. When we have the, la- the hand of the Lord God upon us, that's fulfilling. He, this guy is doing this because he's not fulfilled. We have to understand that. Don't seek that. Seek the things of God. Because these things will try to pull us away. Verse 11, he continues. Now this is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes, so he gives into his request favorably. He gives Ezra the priest this letter, and there would be the kingly seal, the royal seal, and whatever area he would pass through, if anyone questioned him, they would see the king's seal, and they would give him safe passage. I mean, this was... This was like easy pass through the Persian Empire. You know what I'm saying? You just keep going. Somebody sees well, Artaxerxes, whoop, keep going. Well, I'm not going to hold you up under penalty of death. That's just the way it was back then. So he gives him this letter, and it says, verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered For the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offerings, or offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. You know, he's showing more faith here than some of the some of God's people. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? He's showing more faith in a God that he's familiar with, but maybe hasn't completely given his heart to than some of God's people. Keep that in mind. Verse 20, And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do issue a decree with all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, meaning the ref- east of the Euphrates, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? And we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. We find the first tax-exempt status here. (laughs) This is the first 501c3, for those of you that are familiar with it. Just saying. (laughs) And you, Ezra, 
According to your God-given wisdom, let magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach them, teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Yeah, he's still a work in progress. You know, it's a little violent. So he's probably not a really strong believer. He still has his old, you know, potentate sovereign ways. So the second out of six we see is the king's letter. And this is what is authorized in the king's letter to Ezra and his followers. Authority, liberation, uh, financing, autonomy, and from God, the king's favor and spiritual restoration. You know, the word, I, <laughs> I took my notes, I wrote it down, and I just kept, my eyes kept being drawn to the word liberation. Again, it's the misconception. Well, if I go to church, well, if I become a Christian, you know, I'm going to be confined. And even some believers, it's really sad because of their misunderstanding of God's nature, misunderstanding of the word. It's like the house of their life. They take God and they, they have a little, little place for him. They compartmentalize God. Maybe a 10, ten square foot area of their whole, whole home. And they'll open the door, of course, when they want a blessing. But this is pretty pretty much where God is relegated to. Liberation, very important, because it's really our unabated fleshly desires that cause bondage. So what the world thinks and what reality is is opposite. I've never had so much freedom since I became a believer. And then I look back at my past life, and only because the spiritual cataracts were removed from my eyes, I understand and could make a comparison and say that actually was bondage. And I thought I could, was free to do whatever I wanted, and I did a lot of what I wanted. Then I came to faith and said to myself, this is awesome. So liberation. Um, the world brings bondage. Our flesh brings bondage. The Lord brings liberation. Verse 23, the king basically says, and I love this, he says, I'm blessing you. Why should there be wrath upon the king and his sons? Again, remember the precarious political situation that Persia is in with the Greeks. Going to be a problem. Greeks, Egypt, going to be a problem. Not a, a generation or two from this point, Alexander the Great rises up and he starts conquering the Persians. He completely, not only decimates the Persian military, but he goes even further all the way to India. Like he, his swath of land, Alexander's, was incredibly large. And then, of course, the Romans take over from there. So Artaxerxes couldn't see in the future, but he's probably p politically savvy enough to realize you know, I, I, should, I should do something for these people. It would be great to have a, a wall built. They end up building the walls of Jerusalem, a secure people. They're favorable to me, and they're on my weak flanks on the Western Front. Interesting. You know, if we're a good witness, you know, others will notice things about us as well. And they'll take notice of the God we serve. Maybe at first they may not want to admit it, but over time they will take notice of the God we serve. And they may treat us as ambassadors. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. So unbelievers, the unsaved, will see if we're a good witness, and they will say, they will act as if we're ambassadors. They'll ask us to pray for them. They'll ask us to, for, for counsel. And these things will start to happen. And Ezra apparently was a very good witness. In verse 25, we see that the king also gives autonomy and governance. He not only, not only gives them li liberation, freedom, but he allows them not only to, to govern and also to teach about their God. Now remember, the Persians had a pantheon of false gods just like all these pagan cultures. 
And he's saying, spread Judaism. Spread about Yahweh. Spread about the God of heaven. I want you guys to do that. Pretty impressive. Now, it's not always the case. In the first century, a lot of Christians, the first few centuries, a lot of Christians died at the hands of the Romans. But Hebrews, Hebrews 11 tells us that's up to God. Sometimes we'll, we'll glorify him through um, physical deliverance. Sometimes we'll glorify him through spiritual deliverance, but it's up to God to make that determination. All those Roman citizens, all those people in the first few centuries that were murdered by Nero and the different emperors are in glory right now. They're enjoying the Lord for the last 2,000 years, and I don't think they regret giving their lives for Jesus Christ. I, I don't think, I know that they don't regret it. You look at Jim Elliott, um, The Edge of the Spear, great movie. Uh, Jim Elliott was a missionary with some young men, young adults. They went down to Ecuador to the Hurani people and through, I think, a, a customary issue or whatever, they ended up getting killed by some of the Hurani warriors. Um, later on, because of his death, more missionaries came, including, I believe, Jim Elliott's wife, and a lot of the Hurani warriors were converted to Christ. So was it a wasted life? Maybe we could look at it that way. But in God's economy, not only did Jim Elliott and his buddies go to heaven, but also the Horani that people were afraid of, they also went to heaven. So our ways are not always, well, they're definitely not his ways. He knows. Verse 27, Ezra's response, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. He knew where it came from. Not that the guy was just a wonderful guy, right? to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged. How do we get encouraged? Brothers and sisters, it's not through material things. They only last so long. And some are, are, are deceived into thinking that. He was encouraged by what God was doing. God was doing great things. He says, I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered chief men of Israel to go up with me. So th three out of six is Ezra's response is praise for God. Do we praise God? Do we thank him? You know, sometimes some beg him, crying and on their knees for something, and then God grants it, and then they just move on to the next thing. You know, I have a, a, a teenage son, and I like when he's grateful. <laughs> and so does God with his kids. And we have, to, we have to remember that, you know, especially if we're parents. We want our kids to be grateful. God's blessed us so much. You know, you're all sitting here right now and you're breathing. That's a plus right there. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I think we can all look back on our life and say, wow, yeah, there was some close calls there and, you know, God delivered me. So to be grateful, to be thankful. Great lessons in the scripture. Chapter 8. Verses 1 through 10, 20, I'll reference them. The first uh, group of verses up to verse 14 speak about just really the census of the returning Israelites. Verses 15 through 20, the temple leadership. And this was the recruitment phase. So Ezra is, is given the go-ahead from the king. He gathers up the troops. He's, about, he's got about 1,500 men plus women and children. Not as big as the first wave. Really paled in comparison, but he still had a group. Um, I'm not going to read all the hard-to-pronounce names. You can do that on your own. You're welcome. <laughs> so, but an important lesson here is to say that when God calls us to move, that we move. We move. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
Um, I know for me, I'm a creature of habit. I like to be set in my ways. I like when I get into a groove and I'm comfortable. And then sometimes says, yeah, I want to shake that up a little bit. And I'm not really happy about it. I'm just being transparent with you. Um, we can either obey or we cannot obey. When God calls us to move, do we move? I came from um, a very large church with thousands of members, and my pastor felt it was time for me to go. <laughs> and not in a bad way, you know, the training and, you know, God has a calling on your life. And I remember I didn't want to leave the nest. That's what I call it, leaving the nest. When you come from a huge church where everything's done for you, they, you get all the speakers, you have every ministry, the basket weaving ministry, I mean, there's every ministry you could possibly imagine. And God calls you to move, you don't want to move because you're comfortable, right? Brothers and sisters, come on. You know, we may not commit the outright, blatant, big sins, but sometimes our sins are disobedience, just saying. Um, here's another point. As believers, we can get comfortable with our surroundings. We could also get comfortable with ourselves. And here, I'm not here to make you feel warm and fuzzy this morning, but sometimes we have to look in the mirror and... We really shouldn't get complacent and comfortable with ourselves. Maybe the last four or five churches that we came from, maybe it wasn't all them. Maybe the last four or five relationships that we have, maybe it wasn't them. We have to be careful of not getting set in our ways, getting stagnant. It's just like a pond. It starts to breed algae and, and you know, it's sludgy and all that stuff. And Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful of not getting too comfortable with ourselves. And, and, the, and the attitude. Well, this is just my attitude. Well, this is just how I am. Well, this is how I roll. Maybe it's not acceptable. Maybe God's not using us. Maybe not, we're not getting victory because we're getting too comfortable. You know, God wants to do something with us. Check that out. Verse 15. He says, you know, I found none of the sons of Levi there. So in this group... The Levites aren't there. The good thing is the Levites came in the first wave, so there were Levites. There were those people that could do those, um, officiate those services in the temple, those spiritual things. But is it possible that some of the Levites in this wave just got comfortable in Babylon? Again, there's that word again. And sometimes we as Christians can get comfortable in this culture and not be used because we're comfortable. You know, was this an easy thing to take this trek west with all the, the perils of, of the land and the, you know, some of these Jews had never seen Jerusalem. Think about that. Oh, well, this is their hometown and they should, this, this should be wonderful. They should love this. A lot of the Jews grew up in, in a pagan culture and when they stepped foot in Jerusalem, maybe it wasn't what they thought. Well, look at all this rubble. Look at all these stones everywhere. They're the people. They're not friendly, you know. And Ezra had to do a work there. He had to preach against this spiritual stagnation. So some of the folks probably thought, I'm not going there. Well, I'm established. I got a good job in the Persian court. I don't want to leave. All great, great applications that we could think of. Verse 21. He says, Then, a, then I proclaimed a fast there at the, the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. 
There's a proclamation of a fast, and the fourth point, the four out of six, is there's also a test of faith for protection. Now, fasting is one of those things that even a lot of Christians say, I don't understand that. Why are we not eating? You know what I'm saying? Why shouldn't I eat? And basically, there's different things you could fast from. And the, way, the best way I can explain it is to, is to attenuate the physical and accentuate the spiritual. I mean, every day, every, you know, I'm tired, I want to take a nap. I'm hungry, I want to eat. I'm thirsty, I need a drink. And this is what we do. Our body is this constantly firings in the neurons. The brain is receiving information. I'm cold, put something on. I'm hot, let's take it off. Um, and there's this constant information that goes back and forth in our brains. But that's the physical. Sometimes it's so distracting that we need to do things to, to hear from God. We need to get that, all that stuff out of the way. And fasting, one of the ways people fast is they just don't eat food for a while and they sit and they pray and they want to hear from the Lord. They want to tell the body, you know what? Chill out, man. Take, just relax. Uh, you know, there's two of us here. You know, it's the body and it's, it's the, the mind, but it's also the spirit. I want to hear from God. I, I'm, I, feel, I feel dry. I, there's, there's a big undertaking. I need to know what he has to say. And this is what they do. They fasted. And they, it, this was a te- test of faith for protection. Understand this, that the Romans, the Roman Empire came later, and they, did, they made these Roman roads. They had these patrols, military, police type of thing. And the kingdom, in a lot of ways, was safe. But this, this hasn't happened yet. So this trek, 800 miles to go from Persia all the way back to Jerusalem, there were robbers, there was bandits. You know, people could kill you. Uh, and in some countries, they, they still even have things like this. So this was really a test of faith for protection. Okay. Romans 13 actually tells us it legitimizes military police for protection, for keeping civil order in society. So is it a lack of faith if somebody's climbing into your window at 3 in the morning and you call 911? No, it's not a lack of faith. Call the police, you know what I'm saying? Um, You don't know what that person's going to do. God set this up. He set up civil order in society. However, there are those few instances where God tells us through the Spirit. He says, you know what, this one's going to be okay. This one's on me. It's unusual. It's not common. But it's a special me- measure of faith that God is like revealing something to us for a purpose. So Nehemiah, okay, we covered Nehemiah. Nehemiah later accepts the armed escort, but Ezra denies it. Now, does that mean Nehemiah didn't have faith? No, it doesn't mean that. It means there was a special measure of faith for Ezra and his followers. In addition to that, he says, we shared God with the king, the king's court, hoping to get some of them saved. We told the court that God wants this. He's going to protect us. He's in it. So now, like he said, I was ashamed to ask for an escort. After I said all that, you know what? I need to put, I need to put feet on my faith. And that's what he does. Right? He felt that, uh, pr- that asking for armed protection would have hurt his witness. That was, that was a big step. But you know what? The Lord honored it. The Lord honored it. And we need to know the difference. Sometimes you hear these teachings that um, you'll hear, you know, just take a step of faith, just do this, just do that. You know, pray, pray, take a step of faith, but also pray, is this in God's will? I mean, there's been some reckless teaching that has t- blanketly told everybody, throw away your diabetes medication, you know, don't go to that surgeon. And people have lost their lives. They've gotten very sick. Some have died. Some have lost their jobs because of reckless teaching. Okay? So, you know, God's not a genie. It's not like you rub the side and he comes up, you tell him what you want, he just does it, and this is how we live our lives. 
Our relationship is just that. It's a relationship. It's a walk. And we have to be in tune with his spirits. Now, do I think, do I think, I, mean, I remember driving through Pennsylvania and um, I don't know if it was the East Coast or Pennsylvania, but we were at this one peak and the sign said, this is the, this elevation and this is like the tallest mountain. And it's amazing going through Ohio. I'm looking at these huge mountains. And I just was thinking, you know, we were up, we were down, we were up. Pennsylvania is amazing with all those rolling hills. And I remember thinking what Jesus says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to be removed and be cast into the sea. Do I believe that could actually happen? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Am I going to presume upon God's miracles? No, I'm not going to. You know, Lord, I just, I want to move some mountains around. Maybe God's saying to me, hey, Joe, don't come to my house and move the furniture around. This is where I put those mountains. That's where I want it. Stop moving it. You know what I'm saying? He might want me to move another one or something small, but you don't go around in life telling God what to do. See, that's the balance, and we have to understand that balance. Sometimes you hear teachings on a Sunday morning, and it's, they're kooky. They make no sense. And, and you even have a check in your spirit and say, should I do that? Hmm, I'm not so sure about that. So this is what's going on. There's a special measure of faith. Verse 24 he says, then I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, the son of the 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I even weighted into their hand 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas, two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are also holy, and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of our fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight, to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river of Ahava in the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem and, there's the phrase again, the hand of our God was upon us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. And on the fourth day, oh, we'll stop it there. So the fifth out of, out of six is the return is complete. They were delivered from the hand of the enemy and the ambush. God wanted this to happen. Maybe he confounded the robbers. Maybe they slept late that morning. But the bottom line was, there was a free passage all the way to Jerusalem. And verse 3, he says it again. The hand of our God was upon us. This is said six times in these two chapters. If you've been a Christian long enough, you understand this. You've either felt it, you've either sensed it in your spirit, or you've looked back and in hindsight and said, you've deduced that was the hand of God. Now, again, God does miracles. But what God wants, and even Jesus, when he was on the earth, he never focused on his miracles. He did them. A lot of them he did in private, by the way. He didn't want to make a spectacle out of it. What Jesus was trying to do was get the people to trust in God, to have a walk with God. Miracles are like whipped cream. They're the cherry on top. They're nice. They're tasty, but that's not going to sustain you through your walk. Your relationship with God will sustain you through life. Very important to note. Some, again, because of these teachings, 
They want God to just, they want to snap their fingers and have him do stuff for them. We live in an age where people just feel entitled now. And it's not just the young people, it's older people, people in my generation. There's this attitude, I deserve, I want, I should get, I should have, they have, I need to have as well. God doesn't cater to that. See, this is what politicians do. Politicians say, I'm going to propose something. Then they take polls. Whoa, 80% of the people said they don't want me to do that. Okay, I'm not going to do it. God doesn't work like that. God wants a relationship with us. And then you see his hand, and you see what he gives, and you see that it's good because you're in tune with him. You know that he loves you. You trust his judgment, even if it's not what we would have done. Last few verses, verse 33. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinus. With them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Binui, with the number and weight of everything, and the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had, who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. Six out of six, gratefulness in the form of sacrificing. You see, um, seven and eight had to go together. We're going to switch gears after we're done with Ezra. We're going to have a lot of fun in the parables of Christ. I can't wait. That's going to probably take us through the spring. Take each of the parables in the New Testament. You know, it's the way you teach the, the Scripture. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of information that has to come out, but seven and eight have to go together because this was the trek. Now the trek is complete. They're at Jerusalem, okay? We see propitiation for sin. We see general dedication to the Lord. We see purification. And all these are embodied in the future Christ. Remember, this is about four or five hundred years before Jesus actually comes to the earth, grows to be a man, does his ministry, and dies for our sins. So all these things that we see in the Old Testament, sometimes we get confused, but what you have to do is you have to look at it in light of what did Christ bring? The Old Testament was a, a more of a primitive system that pointed to the future Christ. That's how important Jesus Christ is. The Old Testament pointed forward to Christ, and the New Testament, and where we live, we, point, we look back to Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of everything. All right? Today's sermon, the changing of the guard, a new work, new leadership, new challenges. Back then and today, the Lord is always looking for people tell you something, if we could put up that scripture in 2 Chronicles 16.9, this is an amazing scripture. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He's always looking for somebody to step up. You don't have to be super educated. You don't have to be anything. You don't have to be talented all you have to do is have a heart that's loyal to God, and he'll use you. He'll meet you where you're at, and he'll use you. You'll be surprised. Now, again, some of the teachings, some of the ministries, some of the attitude is, I want the glory. I was told early in ministry, don't you ever touch God's glory. Who gets the glory? 
He shows himself strong on behalf. We're the vehicle. Pretty neat that he actually even uses us of those whose heart is loyal to him. Could be somebody in this room. We have a lot of young people here this morning. Keep this in mind. May not be today, may not be next year. But you know what? Nobody is outside the kingdom when it comes to being used. If you are a believer in Christ, he can and he will use you. I know for me, I delayed it because I had my plans. I had the five-year plan. I had the 10-year plan. I had my career. You know what I'm saying? God's like, I want to use you. Like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just not ready yet. You know, I had these ideas. And I found that that I was at peace when I stopped running and just gave myself to him. It's just the way it works. Ezra was a priest. He was a scribe. He was not a governor. He was not an administrator. He was not a trek leader, but God. Dot, 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 dot. And that's the way it is. I can't do this, but God. I've been told that I'm no good, but God. Once you put the but God in the dot, dot, dots, anything is possible. Amen? Amen. All right. You know, ever notice that God, you look in the Scripture, do you ever notice in any, any of the Scripture that He calls the overqualified? He calls the overprideful? Seemingly perfect people? Of course He doesn't. Now, for the rest of us that are actually down to earth and know that we have flaws, these are the people that He can use. So my, my point in this whole thing is, yeah, we looked at the Persian government. Yeah, we looked at the Israelites. You know what, though? At the end of every service, look in the mirror. Because those people are gone. Some are in glory, some are not. We're still here. We're in the present. God can use you. So my point to you is, when he's looking to change the guard, when he's looking to change hands and he goes to call on you, will you raise your hand and say, yeah, Lord, use me. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.